like the Spike Jones movie, Her, but with Hamster Dance as the phone voice instead of Scarlett Johansson. The Mitchells versus the Machines. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about animation, storytelling, and the robot apocalypse. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're talking about the Mitchells versus the Machines, previously known as Connected, previously known as the Mitchells versus the Machines. <laughs> what a winding road we weave. <laughs> I mean, it's 2021. All roads are windy. You get on roads? Right. I, I imagine roads roads are windy. Who My knows? memory of roads is that sometimes they're windy and sometimes there's a path less traveled. So the Mitchells versus the Machines now showing currently on the Netflix for all to see if they have Netflix um, and their homes. I was really excited to see this film. I was too. I feel like I've been following the development of this for a while. Probably, um, I think I first read about it right after Spider-Verse. I was like, oh, Sony, Sony's doing another animated movie with many people that I love behind it and some of the same people as Spider-Verse? Tell me more. I will consume this. Um but I also feel like similarly, it's a movie that I've shown the trailer to my husband a number of times. And even then, after telling him in the morning, like, we're going to watch The Minstrels vs. Machines tonight. He still, that evening, was like, what? You want to watch a movie? What movie? What is this? <laughs> and he loved it in the end, of course. That's the spoiler for today's episode. Go watch The Missiles. The Missiles? The Mitchells vs. The Machines. If it were The Missiles, that'd be a whole different, much shorter movie. <laughs> we had um, a similar thing in, in my home with, with my son, Jack. And we were, I was saying, hey, we're having family movie night. And I try to pull in, uh, hey, let's watch it during lunch. And he's like, ah, you said movie night. <laughs> so I was like, okay, fine. We'll watch it over dinner. Because um, night for us starts at 4.30. And so... <laughs> I mean, when you have a 7.30 p.m. bedtime, like, let's let's be real. Like, night is what relative. That's what I mean. So is this movie. It's also about relatives. But um, we, I was showing him the trailer because I always try to help him understand the, the feeling of a movie. And thankfully, the trailer behind this gives a really nice feeling of the movie without giving you everything that you're going to get, which I I appreciate. Uh, I think the first few trailers with Spider-Verse had the same thing of, here, let's evoke the feeling and not tell you anything about what you're actually going to be seeing. (laughs) Yeah. But but you'll get a sense of the vibe and the world um, with plenty of surprises left. And so I showed him the trailer and he was kind of interested but um still he was very doubtful that he would enjoy anything 
Um, he's really afraid of watching new things because he's not sure if there's going to be a scary part or a part that's too sad or a part that's too happy or the part that's too emotional. So it's always a crapshoot. Does Jack feel that way just about like original stories or just like anything new? Like if you had to watch a new, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I can't, I don't really know what your son watches, but um, if he loved the star Wars movies and there was a new star Wars movie that was maybe more of like an, Ridley Scott alien of Star Wars movies would he like see it no doubt or would it be the same like I don't know if I want to watch this or not I think if it's something in his same arena he would watch it like Mm -hmm. Netflix has just put out some new Octonauts movies and he's like the day they get released he's like watch I want to watch this Um, right now Um, when there's a new Amphibia he's like watch this right now like New Blueies come out. It's like, watch it immediately. Um, but if it's something where it's, he hasn't seen it at all. Um, it's a completely new, original thing. Um, even when we said, you love Lego Movie. You love Lego Movie 2. You enjoyed Spider-Verse. <laughs> this is going to feel similar in some ways. To those movies. Yeah. Even with all that, like, I'm not going to watch it. And I know part of that has to do <laughs> with, with autism. And I know part of that has to do with being eight. But I think <laughs> it's just the, I don't want something new. But now he, he loved it. He really, really loved it. It, it took a lot to get him to, like, Let's hit play. We're going to hit play now. I'm hitting play. We're watching this. It's nice that people like you and I have kind of followed this and people who have known nothing about it have had like the same like enthusiastic reaction after finishing it too. Mm. It's not like one or the other, like I knew nothing going in and now I love it. And it's, I knew what I was going to get. And of course I loved it. It's everyone has something to take away from this movie. Yes. Do you want to say a little bit about, I mean, we've alluded to people behind the scenes. Do you want to say a little bit about where this movie is coming from? Who who are the cooks in the kitchen? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I took some notes from the prestigious Wikipedia. So apologies <laughs> uh, if any of these details are wrong from the date that I stole them from the internet. Um, but I have it marked down as directed and co-written by Mike Rianda. Um who is previously a writer and creative director from a show that I love, Gravity Falls. So I was like, yeah, of course, on it. Um, And he also had a co-director and a co-writer in Jeff Rowe, who was also writing on Gravity Falls and is, I think, currently a staff writer on uh, Disenchantment, which we've talked about on this show before. It's more of an adult-themed animated show, but that click too, which is funny mm-hmm. because like I had to pause the movie five seconds in and go like, who voices Katie Mitchell? Cause it's going to drive me crazy. I know this voice. I don't know what it is. And then I had to look it up. It's like, Oh, Abby Jacobson, princess Tia Beanie. Like that's princess Tia Beanie is stuck in my head. Like I, I couldn't unhear her, but um, yeah. So people, 
that I know who've done things that I love. Um, so maybe I was, uh, that was my into original content. Like I know these creators do good work. So I'm like, yeah, I'm sold mm-hmm. two years ago. Don't even need a trailer. Just give me a name and plot summary and people I'm on board. And then of course you have, you know, Chris Miller and Phil Lord as executive producers. Yeah, I guess producers make a big difference and that good stuff too. But yeah. They can. <laughs> I don't know what influence they had over things, but... I think Lord and Miller definitely... Um, they, they seem to have an influence. A lot things that they work on, whether directly or produce, seem to have a certain element of fun and like clever depth to them. Yeah. Maybe and- some projects that they pick, or I don't know if they just have the influence on the project. I don't know. And there was a surprising level of depth in this film. Uh, I know that it was the concept. I feel like there are two movies that got mashed together in a good way. Like, a, <laughs> and uh, so I think I'm going to say, can take everything that I'm saying and add like in parentheses in a good way to most everything that I say, because I, that's how I mean it. But you essentially have an action movie robot apocalypse film. And then you have, um, the, a good old fashioned, uh, child parent relationship healing story parents don't understand me, but I also don't understand my parents and we'll come to a mutual understanding of how we each are unique. And I don't think that's saying too much about spoilers because we, but like, cause I, I feel like people know robot apocalypse expectations and my parents don't understand me story expectations. Yeah, and I will say I think the more the more recent trailers maybe oversold the robot apocalypse portion of it um, a smidgen because uh, it's definitely a movie that's about a strained father daughter relationship, and the B plot is just a robot apocalypse. It's like let's right. take these normal people with very real normal problems and put it in like the most stressful box of all time in which to express those problems. It's like what if there's a father and a daughter and they don't get along really well and she's going off to college. And then what if we put them in a car for a whole road trip? Mm, I don't think that's far enough. We need a robot apocalypse also. I. It's like... It's like the Goofy movie. But with robots. Yeah, you know what? I hadn't thought of that, but you were spot on. Hmm. <laughs> I definitely, I was I was telling you before the recording, I have read at least one review that was like, this is a movie for Gen Z, and I had to like close the laptop and pushed away a bit of like, <laughs> am I the one who's out of touch? Because it's felt like a movie for me, a millennial. Mm. old millennial hang on where am i i don't know i'm old enough to remember being gen y before there was before i was renamed 
Um, <laughs> to me, it felt like a movie that's very true to like my experience and like my time going to college and like the memes and things that I knew is very true to like that. Uh, and then reading like, oh yeah, this is a, a Gen Z movie. I'm like, oh, okay. I, that was not my impression of what Gen Z was, but hearing like, yeah, it's a goofy movie. Like, yeah, that just re reiterates to me. Like this is a movie that speaks to me, a millennial with a capital M. Yeah, I mean, I I related to it in in some ways. I I think, and we'll we'll talk about this later on as we as we pull apart themes. But I think there are distinct things that separate it out from other films like this or other stories that where a a child and a parent have to come to a new understanding. So. I think there are things that make it distinctly a movie from now versus a movie from 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Oh my gosh, how long ago was a goofy movie? But um, (laughs) yeah, it definitely takes the smart device wedge and plays off of it to the nth degree. And I think its ultimate message, which it does a really good a job at telling is it doesn't take just a stereotypical, like, smart device is bad stance. And it's, like, explained very clearly to the father who is uh, technologically illiterate in a hilarious way. Like, this is how these characters interact with the world. It's not their replacement for the world. It's just a lens through which they see the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how like, they process uh, the world. This is the first movie that has had something smart to say about this topic that isn't just a New Yorker cartoon punchline. Thank you. Hmm. So what is the story that we get in The Mitchells versus the Machines? And we'll stay in spoiler-free territory. So if you're still, like, on the fence, I don't know, just go watch it. But I don't, I don't, if you're still on the fence, like, I wonder... I want to hear a little bit more about this movie. We'll stay in the spoiler-free zone for a little bit longer while we talk about what this movie really is about. Like, what's the core story? I mean, we've alluded to the themes, the two themes of it, but what's the story, Mackenzie? Yeah, we have two main, main characters and the rest of the family that they are part of. We have Katie Mitchell... Um, a young girl about to go to college and she makes weird videos that she finds funny, but she knows everyone else thinks are weird. And she has like this unique view and taste and very, um, dare I use the H word, hipster aesthetic to how she approaches life uh, in a good way. Good hipster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, her dad, Rick Mitchell, is just very anti-technology, wants to be outdoors, self-sufficient, doesn't need to look anything up on Wikipedia, unlike me ever. Um, It just doesn't get his daughter's love of weirdness and spending time with technology and connecting to people through that technology um, and not needing to be self-sufficient. Fundamentally, don't understand each other anymore where there used to be a lot of love. 
Mm-hmm. But on the sidelines of this fight, uh, you have Linda Mitchell, the mother, um, who is Maya Rudolph as an animated character. And I mean that literally and figuratively. <laughs> uh, and you have Aaron Mitchell, who is Katie's little brother, who just loves dinosaurs and is just as weird as his sister and gets along with her super well. So it's like a reverse Barton Lisa relationship almost. And of course, not really character, but is also there, their dog Munchie, who might be um, the worst dog of all time. Or the best. Or the best. Mm, or the best. So the in the first 10 minutes of the movie still without getting spoilery, um, of course, Katie's about to go to college and there's a huge fight. And Linda tells Rick, like, you have to fix this. And so dad Rick decides to cancel her plane ticket to college and drive her all the way across the country to college instead. So they're stuck in a car to talk about their feelings, um, which Katie is not about since she's missing serious bonding time with these people who she perceives as being the rest of her life. And she's missing out. Her new tribe, her, her people, her, her group of weirdos that she's going to be, and make her found family. Exactly. And that's the story of the Mitchells versus the machines. Oh, and at some point there's a robot apocalypse. So throw that in there too. And I really mean like that's in there. It's fun. I enjoy it. Um, the father daughter stuff is enough to keep the movie going on its own. I think this would be a good entertaining movie without the robot apocalypse, but the robot apocalypse just gives it that much more of a oomph to it. Can you say robot apocalypse one more time? Robot apocalypse. I just love the way you say it. It just comes off robot apocalypse. It just came out as like really, really great. Yeah. No, no space between robot and apocalypse. And you have to have the bot and the pock kind of slant rhyme. Yeah. I like it's that. almost like robot dash a dash apocalypse, like robot apocalypse, robot apocalypse. <laughs> uh, which is different than r- robot apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the way that uh, Rick would say it. Robot. Yeah. Yes, the robots. I loved. I love they said robots. It's beautiful. So many. This is one of those movies that you could watch and go like, they really had a good idea of who these characters are. And while it's not animated, my classic go-to example for this is um, Stranger Than Fiction. Mm-hmm. As like a movie where like they clearly like made a list of like things characters would do. <laughs> And when it fit with the story, they put it in because it has nothing to do with the scene. Doesn't really have an impact, but tells you who the character is. Dustin Hoffman <laughs> pours himself a cup of coffee in his office, drinks the coffee, goes, ugh, <laughs> puts it back in the pot <laughs> and turns on the pot again. It's like, ugh, that's so perfect. That's perfectly Dustin Hoffman in this movie. Uh, and in the Mitchells versus the Machines, you get so many people doing Aaron and Katie and their raptor bump, I think they call it. Mm-hmm. It's like their little, like, not high-five raptor claw thing. Like, this yeah. doesn't add anything plot-wise, but this tells me 100% everything I need to know about this relationship and both of these characters. Which Jack was upset about because they were using the wrong number of fingers <laughs> to do a raptor claw. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, they're only using two fingers. It should be three. They should be it's, using three. It's harder to do three. I know, but it was just like... He, he was just so, he's like, why are they, 
Why are they doing it like that? That's, that's wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, Jack found a very kindred spirit in Aaron, but also apparently, like, is going to one-up Aaron and be like, mm, <laughs> your raptor so bump is... is... is the neighbor girl in this I this think scenario? so. I think so. Yeah. It's just really... It was really interesting to have him have a character so relatable to him. Uh, he he <laughs> ridiculous. He hasn't seen like somebody like him on screen, like somebody that loves dinosaurs so wholly and fully. That wasn't gonna like be ravaged by actual dinosaurs, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we have that in Jurassic World, Camp Cretaceous, or other things that he's watched and. But, like, that's scary stuff. Like, dinosaurs are going to be bad. Bad things happen to kids who love dinosaurs. Yeah, it's like the Chekhov's gun of, like, kid characters. If you love a dinosaur, you're going to get eaten by one in this movie. Duh. Right. I was waiting for some electronic, like, animatronic dinosaur to come to life. (laughs) Uh, I would have loved that, but I'm also having this conversation glad they didn't steer into that. It was just nice to have a kid who just loved dinosaurs. There was no more depth to that. But I think that's what this movie gets right. Um, in I don't know if this I don't think this gets into spoiler territory, but you you end up with usually we spend a lot of time learning about the main character and what the main character loves, and the main character gets all the things that are unique about them. And this is a movie where we actually get to see that everybody has their uniqueness. Everyone has the thing that they love, the thing that they're good at. You know, um, Rick Mitchell and his non-technology self, but his hands-on and his can-do attitude and his this is how we do it and his tools, you know, the, the special screwdrivers and everything. Like, he's... He has his enthusiasms and what he's excited about and his knowledge. And yes, that's different than everybody else's, but he has that to a, to a huge, great degree. And it's usually not in a film that we get to see each character have that. Hmm. Yeah, everyone feels individual and real right and i and i know that's part of the theme of the movie like katie mitchell's looking for her own special group of weirdos and isn't realizing that family is the group of weirdos like that's yeah. you all have different interests but you all have the same approach mm-hmm. that's a good way of putting it that's family. That's family, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Just got new catchphrases for this podcast. <laughs> That's family, bro. Red is good animated. Put it on the t-shirt. <laughs> That's family, bro. <laughs> it's so on brand for us. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I I feel like I had a thought. It's gone now. Um <laughs> 
Oh, I, I was trying to like describe like in a in a pitch meeting way like what this movie is, and I think that it's like part Little Miss Sunshine, mm. part like the fanciest, most colorful, flashiest anime movie you can think of. In my case, Promare, <laughs> and part like her, her. Spike Jones movie hurt. No, I was sorry, arrested developmenting. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was. I'm trying. Her. <laughs> and, and that's the three elements for you. It's like the family, and like the bright colors, and also like the weirdly deep technology movie part thing. With the plot of a goofy movie. Yes, you're right. So throw in a goofy movie there also. Four things. Four things. And your favorite set of internet memes. Five things. <laughs> <laughs> which before we get too spoilery I do want to talk about memes because mm. this is the first thing that I think is like successfully utilized memes hmm. in like a piece of fiction say a little bit about that I think sometimes if you see a meme or the idea of a meme used in something these days it's either like a sad knockoff of a real life meme or like a fake meme that isn't actually funny or good. Um, so think of um, Not For Kids, uh, the series from HBO Veep, where there's a moment like, you're memeing, ma'am. Like that that gif lives in my head of just the meme of someone saying, you're memeing, ma'am, to the vice president about something that isn't funny otherwise. Um, or in Futurama, they do the the Susan Boyle video. Yes. Um, with Leela's boil on her rear end that sings, uh, which is, of course, a playoff of real-life Susan Boyle, who had the amazing voice um, and was a meme cultural moment. Uh, and the, the Futurama version of that is, like, not that funny. The episode's pretty good, but just the meme is not interesting or funny. Or if a show's trying to be topical, they might utilize, like, what... I'm going to use air quotes here. A current meme, which of course by the time something airs is ancient in internet years. Um, so I think what's really smart about the Mitchells versus the Machines, while it's about memes and internet culture and weirdness and hashtags so random to a certain degree, the two things to do with memes that I really like are number one, using only really old memes. <laughs> Nothing will feel dated by the time it comes out because it's already intentionally old and dated. It's about old things you love that are stuck in your head, not what's new and trending. Mm. And number two, the spirit of the meme. And this is a movie that I think like really successfully captures what a meme is and puts it on screen. I'm going to put on my English major pretentious hat here. Go ahead. Like, if you're going to English, I think this is on brand. If we're going to English major about something, let's English major about something a little bit ridiculous. We have to. Yes. Uh, there are several moments in the Mitchells vs. Machines where they kind of do a freeze frame of the plot or something, and they put up all kinds of colorful, weird, like, internet things or versions of Katie and Rick as a piece of bread with peanut butter and a piece of bread with jelly on that dancing over the freeze frame. And what this does successfully is it gets why beams are beloved. It puts additional context 
onto a moment without ruining that moment in the first place. So you could watch this movie and you could have that exact moment of, without getting spoilery, the Rick Mitchell special. It would still be meaningful, but it'd be more subtle. What this movie does is it memes it, freeze frame, plays it over the top and calls attention to that specific moment, adding context that this is important. It's the big director's finger going, you should be paying attention to this. And it really utilizes that well. And the English major part of this is I'm going to compare those moments in this movie to the filmography of Spike Lee and his famous moment from 1989's Do the Right Thing, where he shows the trash can going through the window multiple times, which is a trademark of Spike Lee's cinematography, showing the same moment from different angles multiple times, because it calls attention to it and makes you know it's important. And people have debated the Spike Lee moment for 30-some years now. Um, and what it is, with no insult to Spike Lee, is a meme of his own movie in the movie in context, fulfilling that same role as these meme moments do in the Mitchells versus the Machines. Bam! Liberal arts degree. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I love it. <laughs> That's all I want to say. I love that. Because... I mean, there are, what do I want to say? It's nice to have a stylistic, in-universe, in-character way to call attention to something. And I think that usually what it feels like if a meme is utilized is it feels like the creators or the writers, we start to see their hands a little bit too much. Yeah. And it, it feels like something tacked on by them. Where this feels like we're watching a story that Katie has gone back and drawn over and created and added to. Like it feels like it's of the universe of the character and not of the creators adding something to a moment. Yeah, it's very much the memes of the characters. It's memes they would create. Yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, yeah. You just had the look of like, is that agreement? I don't know how to react. No, no. I, I was I was just trying to think of if I, if I had anything else to say about that. But no, I think I think that's the difference. I, I think they're they're using it in the artistic way that you're you're describing and what it does emotionally. And then there's like that added bonus of it being character and world-based and not, hey, look at this, we're making a reference. So it's funny because it's a reference. Yeah, everything in this movie is essential and intentional. There's nothing funny just because it's, no, that's a lie. There are a couple things that are funny just because they're funny, but they're like, amazingly funny <laughs> but most like 98% of what's in this movie that is funny is funny because it is a good joke and it serves plot or character and drives those stories forward I mean shouldn't most jokes be that though shouldn't like your most meaty jokes be based in character and plot isn't that like the juicy, I mean, that's like the juicy center that you're all trying to get. Like that's 
I'm of the Aristotelian school, so I agree. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to throw like any culture under the bus that like isn't as like finely crafted. So every joke serves a purpose. Like we also write. I have written jokes where I go like, <laughs> that's funny. It does nothing for character or plot in my story. <laughs> like those are the easy jokes to write. And it's, you kind of have to work your way backwards into telling the joke sometimes. Um, I get it. It's hard. I'm not going to say like, you're not a good person. If you can't write a joke that serves character and plot and is funny, you could still be a good person and a good writer. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. what's amazing is movie 98% of the time has those jokes that work on multiple levels and serves multiple purposes Mm -hmm. which then you can forgive the ones well not forgive but you can still enjoy them i think it's more satisfying though when when you walk away from um come out of a film that has so explored characters so thoroughly the whole time even as you're laughing and feeling that even like a throwaway joke is fine because you've been satisfied. But if everything's a throwaway joke, then you haven't eaten anything because everything got thrown away. <laughs> it got thrown away. It's a good metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's true. That's being said, like I said or alluded to, this movie does have a handful of throwaway jokes that I don't think serve either a plot or character purpose, but they are like amazing. It's like in this buffet where you, you have to eat and you want to eat the whole buffet from left end of the table to the right end of the table. It's nice that like in the middle sometimes of like this well-crafted, delicious, like omakase expensive food being served on gold platters that there's just like a small McDonald's French fry halfway through. You're like, oh, thank God, McDonald's French fries. I didn't know that I needed that, but I did. If I can English major again, in the tragedy of Macbeth, the porter scene is essential because it adds humor into the tragedy. And what the throwaway jokes do in the Mitchells versus the Machines that it adds throwaway jokes into a movie that is laugh out loud funny and makes you think the entire time. So it's just nice to like turn your brain off for one minute and have a throwaway joke and reset. <laughs> I haven't seen a movie that worked like that before where it's like, oh, you need the comic relief to have comic relief from the comic movie. Yes, it is very much like, and this is how Mitchell's versus the machines is like Macbeth. (laughs) It's like Macbeth. It's like do the right thing. It's like stranger than fiction in having one of those episodes again, where I just have too many metaphors going. I think I think it's wondrous and beautiful, and um, I I think it just speaks to the quality of the film. And I think we can move. This is our transition point. I think to like spoiler territory. But I think that's part of what makes this film operate so well is that it does more than what you would expect. And there's more depth to everything that's there. There's depth to the characters. There's depth to the plot. There's depth to the comedy. And it's well thought out and well formed. Also, it looks beautiful. Yeah. It looks glorious. 
I will say this. I personally would have loved to see it on the large screen, big screen in a movie theater. However, I am so grateful as the parent of, of a child who has autism to be able to watch that at home so there is not sensory overload for, for Jack. So we could have the volume down, that we could pause when things get a little too intense. It's not overwhelming and he could actually enjoy it because it is also quite a visually stimulating movie. Like there's a lot going on. And I think if we had seen it in the theater, I'm sure that it would have been overstimulating for Jack and he would not have enjoyed it nearly as much as he did watching it at home on his own terms. Yeah, I absolutely get and respect, <clears throat> and respect that. Um, I think this is one of the, as someone who doesn't have those needs, this is one of the first movies that I saw that I was like, oh man, I wish I could see this in the theater right now. I mean, like, not like, not that there aren't movie theaters showing up. Those exist. I wish that, <laughs> that we lived in a world currently where I'd be comfortable going to movie theater <laughs> mm -hmm. to see this. Yeah. And maybe one day at, like they'll have like a summer movie series for kids at like, I don't know, the Ohio theater or something. And I can go like, oh, yes, I can finally see it on the big screen. Anyway, spoiler zone, officially. Welcome. You're warned. Stop now. You should watch this. Um, Velociraptor. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know if we have, like, a structured way through a spoiler zone of this podcast. Um, but, Chris, tell me your spoilery reactions what what is there to love for you i think for me uh what what was most satisfying is i mean the, the whole story the the father-daughter relationship of feeling for a lot of the movie that we know what this movie is and we know who these characters are and we constantly get surprised by who these characters actually are. And you start to think that, oh, it's this, we get the oafish dad who doesn't understand his daughter. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll go with your movie. But it's not really that. We don't, we don't ever get that. We have, we, we end up with a story of a father who was living one way and made a decision to do something because now it's not about him anymore. Now it's about his daughter. And that, that line that he says, like, you know, we know this is hard for you. She's like, no, this is easy. Like it's, this is easy. I know what exactly why I'm making this decision. And it's, it's because of, it's because of her. Mm -hmm. um, and, and seeing that and the fact that Katie gets to experience that moment with her dad of seeing him as 
human and loving and caring, that he's not the, he's not dumb. He's not oof. Um, he's smart in his own way. But I, I, there are his, the things that he loves are not the same things that everyone else loves. But we, they can see that we can see them as equal characters. But you had a thought. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I like that it doesn't try to excuse or explain away his behavior. It just adds depth and shows that there's more to the story than you as the audience or Katie understands the first surface level glance of like, ah, uh, he's just the overbearing dad who doesn't get his daughter. Yeah. And, and I think it also puts it that it's not, it doesn't feel like an easy answer. You know, in some ways it's like, here's a family movie and we're going to get a resolution at the end. But also it's about making a small change. It's about changing your programming. I mean, that's, that's what the movie's really about. Um, and I know that they try to figure that out with connected and changing the title, you know, before they changed it back. But like the idea of what is that connection point? And how are these people actually connected? Which makes sense, but it's not as evocative as the Mitchells versus the Machines. Um, yeah. The old slash new title tells you so much more about the, the style and feel of the movie than just the one word, like, Pixar title. Right. <laughs> and, or, like, <laughs> Tangled. Like, okay, sure, sure. Frozen. Okay. Um, but, but what do you mean? And I think, what did I want to say about that that title about the connection? I mean, that's that's the end goal is the connection. But the thing that was surprising is it's about the it's not about the love because I you know Pal the the character the the phone is like don't tell me that it's about love or humans have the capacity to love like I don't care. That's not what it's about. Like, it has to be something else. And it's the fact that humans can evolve. Humans can change. Humans have the capacity to change their minds about something and learn something new and different. And I think if we are curious about each other, especially those that we our family with um, or our friends, if we can show curiosity towards like what is going on in your life, I think we have the more, we can live that capacity for change. I agree with that. And that's something that's hard. And I don't know, I think I've been thinking about that a lot the last year and a half slash four years as everyone has. Uh, <laughs> What does it take to have the capacity to change? What is the meaning of life? Um, I I really, I think in any other movie, because we're in spoiler zone, I would question at the end, like the robot magically having been able to change his program and be like, we decided we could change. It'd be like, did you, did you earn that moment in this movie? Like you earned that moment, Deborah 5,000. <laughs> You're allowed to have magically changed. That's the point of the movie. You're good. I think that's the biggest thing about this movie is that everything feels like it's earned. Everything 
everything feels like it's deserved. And I think there's there's even a moment, even in the, the silliest of bits, you know, we have Eric and Deborah Bott and when they're first crafting those names for themselves and they're like, we're actually human. And they have this whole thing of like, you know, they're going down the stairs, like, let's just see where this is going. I want to see where this is going. And they just let it continue. And then they had, um, what was it? Oh, it was Aaron's line. It's like, I just turned a quarter. He's like, I love these guys. Like, there was a cer- certain moment where he's like, yeah, they've, 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 that's, I, they've, they've got my vote. Like, <laughs> forget exactly his line, but it's like, that's, like, they just turned the corner with that. This is, this is where. Yeah, that was a good line. I have like a list of favorite things. Hopefully we can knock some of them out before we get to the actually favorite things part of our podcast. Um, but one of mine was in this back and forth of like, no, we're totally human. See, we have faces and they draw faces on. We have human emotion and they like express emotion or whatever. Like, well, if you're human, what are your names? Eric and Deborah Bot 5000. Like, <laughs> Deborah Bot 5000 is so bad at being human. <laughs> Let's add the word bot to Deborah and then the word 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great because up until that point, like, of course, adding like a string of four digits to the end of a thing in pop culture makes it some kind of robot or advanced technology. Like the power lifter 1500, the Deborah bot 5,000. Like we know that, but up until that point in this movie, that's not what the robots are. They're the PAL max. They don't have silly numbers added to the end or anything. Mm-hmm. But of course, as I found out reading, the uh, super advanced robots that Pal makes by the end of the movie are the Glaxon 5000, which I thought was just a nice extra touch. <laughs> I don't have to say that out loud. Like, okay, 5000. You got into the movie beyond Deborah. <laughs> I do appreciate in that moment, though, that the first answer was, I'm Eric too. Like, oh, no, no, my name <laughs> like, is Deborah. <laughs> Bot 5,000. <laughs> it was the equivalent of watching like a really awkward TV show, like a Curb Your Enthusiasm, where they just keep going on something that is so wrong and so painful to watch, but it becomes funny. Mm-hmm. It's like this robot is trying so hard to be human. It's painful, but it just crosses that threshold from painful to funny at the last minute. And I just, I just love the gag of a character thinking up a name like a fake name like there's just that but it's i think it's funny because it pulls it it's the robot and liz you know oh gosh what what is the lee lemon lee lemon lee lemon <laughs> sir like that's my name like oh yeah from futurama yeah. and when she's disguised as man leela man lee lemon lee, lee lemon <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will ignore everything that happened until this point and like, okay, cool, your name is this. I I do but but that that idea of everything meaning something and most things coming back and paying off in wonderful ways and so being surprised. I think that's um I mean, the joke that 
we we had to pause the movie about three minutes in because um, the <laughs> my wife and son were laughing so hard I couldn't hear anything, so I had to pause for a moment. Um, and we had to rewatch it. The uh, the moment of the screaming baboon, they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop laughing. They 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 almost gave themselves asthma attacks. Um, they were laughing so hard at that. And then of course I'm laughing at them laughing at the movie. And then we have to rewind it and watch that part again. And then it comes back like two other times. And then the last moment, though, you're surprised because now it's the robot. Now it's Pal, like, going through that. And then you just see the baboon again or the gibbon or the screaming gibbon. And it's just like, ah. <sighs> I love this movie sets the humor bar extremely high in those first three yeah. minutes. You're like... That's the high point. Clearly, this movie isn't getting any better. And <laughs> it turns it up to 11. Like, it consistently raises the bar even more after you've already had to pause the movie because you're laughing too hard. For me, in the first three minutes, it was um, the flashback to Katie's first movie in childhood, mm. which is already, like, weird and funny and, like, a kid way on its own. Like, the <sighs> McDonald's meal, like, cardboard lifts, and there's, like, a burger on marionette strings like i'm burger cop i got like one more day left to retirement it's like just weird and cute and funny and then in the video munchie the dog eats burger cop it's like oh god no oh my intestines are everywhere it's the reaction of the kids in the room watching this burger dairy being slaughtered by the dogs that's it that's the movie if that were the only if the movie ended now at minute three I would be completely satisfied and mark this five stars on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> but it keeps giving good jokes. The only one that I've alluded to that I, I debate whether it like drives the plot or character forward. Again, I don't care because you do so many of those, you're allowed to have a freebie. It's the whole, <laughs> the Furby scene. <laughs> I don't know if Furby was desperate for market placement, if they were cheap to buy to put in the movie they wanted a real reference. I don't know, but I love it. I That was the one scene that was too much for Jack. Like too too scary. scary. And we had to we had to pause and explain. They were scary when they came out, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> he's like, he had no context. Like, what even are these things? We're like, these were scary talking dolls. And they sometimes would talk by themselves. Like, we, people thought they were cute. <laughs> what I wasn't sure, and I haven't looked up, is they were so photorealistic in this movie. I wasn't sure if they filmed Furbies and put them into the animated movie or if they, like, <laughs> made an animated Furby. It looked so realistic to me. The The best part for us was... Um, I think it was Katie asks like, why would they make, why would they make something like that? And that, and then Jack essentially said something like, "That's what I was asking." <laughs> like that's my that's my question. Why would they? <laughs> so there's this. It, fun meta like family thing like what what is even happening why why would they do that <laughs> it just gets 
<laughs> so absurd with the the giant like three story tall Furby, and like the subtitles translating the Furbies of like let the dark harvest begin, <laughs> like the scary like low shot of a giant Furby walking. Uh, what was funny was Rochelle wasn't sure. My wife wasn't sure if Jack could read fast enough. <laughs> so there's that scary stuff going on, and then you have my wife's voice like let the let the dark harvest be good. And like, she's trying to make the Furby sound funny <laughs> while this horrific, scary thing is happening to try to like tamp down on the scare factor. <sighs> oh man, that, <laughs> that was a good scene. That was funny for funny sake, but it's like so far into the funny for funny sake. Like you, you get a pass. You're okay. Yeah. And like on the flip side, because I, I've talked about this podcast how much like Bathos, which is normally like something that's really serious becoming something really funny, like the childhood hamburger getting eaten by the dog and his intestines going bad. <laughs> right. Love that bait and switch emotionally. The opposite Bathos is the end of that Furby scene, which I also really loved and so hard to pull off, where it's something that's so funny that goes something like so sad and serious. Of the you've the building action scene of like the electronics start out to get us. The electronics start out to get us. The electronics start out to get us. It's like, what do we need to do? We need to turn off the Wi-Fi, and they destroy the Wi-Fi router, and they're running like, we did it. We won. We can beat the bill, and by uploading this thing to the internet. Mm. And you as an audience member get it at the same time they do. It's perfect timing. Uh, no notes would not change a thing. That was just... One of those moments like, oh, man, I wish I could have come up with that as a writer. That's so good. Yeah. Uploads failing at like 97 or 98%. <laughs> I know it's triggering to you right now for reasons not discussed in the recording, but. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> I think we've, we've, we've all been there. You most recently. <laughs> no, not... Not a failed upload. Oh, God, why? Six hours remaining. Six hours later. Failed at 97%. Also, also, it was slightly traumatizing to like to know that the answer had to be done in, a, in an Apple store, essentially. <laughs> There's a, um, a, a lot of things that made me uh, chuckle and guffaw on a professional unrelated to this podcast level. <laughs> the pal Max, you say? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I did appreciate, though, that it was like, it's basically Mark Beek's like it it was all of that it it was somebody who wasn't evil you know try, it was just making all the wrong decisions and not thinking of the ramifications of all the decisions they were making like wait maybe it was a bad idea to collect user information and do this and this and this with it uh my husband asked me like is mark beeks a trope now it's like 
Honey, Mark Zuckerberg was a trope before Mark Beeks. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm glad the DuckTales popularized it. But <laughs> and they're all named Mark now. That's how much you can get away with. Mm, you're a tech mogul named Mark. Go. And see. <laughs> yeah. That's the character. It writes itself. <laughs> it kind of does. Um, yeah, that was... I forget his last name in the movie. He was there. He was funny. He served a plot point. Uh, I, I wouldn't call him a main character uh, because, again, I think <laughs> this movie would be fine without the robot apocalypse part. Right. Uh, but certainly much more fun with that. I mean, the robot apocalypse gives each of gave each of them a chance to shine. Without that, you'd have to have another interruption to the road trip. That would that would force them off of that course. Yeah. You know. Like Aaron got a seed and Linda got her seed, but no, it's they're all challenged with the robot apocalypse. Right. It's kind of like when you finally push the car down the hill on accident and you end up in the river and and you have a moment to talk because your car is just floating down the river and there's nothing you can do at this point. There's no radio. You're not safe in the car. And you finally have to deal with what's going on between the two of you. Nobody else but you. That's so, so good. <laughs> that was eerily accurate. <laughs> It's uh, weepy. I'm getting weepy thinking about it. But but I think Robot Apocalypse works on a Katie level. It's it's like the Katie level issue that that would interrupt things. She makes wild movies, so of course, like a wild movie trope would be the thing that would interrupt her family thing and cause it. So, I mean, one might, one could argue that there was no robot apocalypse, that it was all Katie, like, inserting things into that. I'm not saying that that's the plot of the movie. I'm saying, like, there's... They definitely get a presidential medal. At the right, end. right. I'm not. I'm not saying that <laughs> there, there was a dream sequence or anything like that. I'm just saying it's something that would fit. That here's how Katie dealt with all of that. You know, like the same way she made her dog cop movies and things. It feels very much like a if a movie lover were going to have a issue, she could invent something like the robot apocalypse. So it's like a very character-based thing to interrupt their road trip. Well, I like it also because it's it's the perfect wedge because it's also a Rick thing. Yes. He is a prepper. He is prepared for the apocalypse. And here he is forced to listen to his daughter, and he keeps making the choice to listen to her and work with her and follow her plan to bond with her even though at a practical level, like he is the person who knows the most about what to do right now. It's beyond like a, 
uh, well, you both have like good perspectives. Like Rick is ready for this. <laughs> and he's still emotionally making the choice to bond with his family than necessarily survive the robot apocalypse. He is doing good dad work all along the way. He's not magically redeemed at the end. Mm-hmm. And I think in one of the plays that I was writing for, for children, uh, for school children to try to teach them a lesson, I was, I was talking to the artistic director of the theater I was working with and I was like, I have this issue. Like, I really want this character to learn something. It's Dr. Kramer. So I really want this character to learn something, but I also don't want them to be totally transformed by the end. I don't want him to, like, change. And he's like, well, just because he learns something doesn't mean he's a master of that thing by the end. <laughs> and I think that's what I love so much about Rick just because he learned something doesn't mean that he's mastered something. Mm-hmm. He still has to mail that letter, be my friend on the internet like a crazy person. <laughs> like he, st- he still has to do that. Like he has learned, he has progressed, he has not mastered. And I think that's more interesting to be like, look, I'm on a, I'm on a journey. I've moved forward but I'm not all the way there yet. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of, that's, I think that idea and that arc of a movie's uh, very relevant right now. And it will always be in fashion. It will always be in vogue. But I think right now what we need is a lot more stories about like, I did learn a lesson and things aren't perfect, but I'm going to try because that's what people need right now. And that's really the moral of Lego Movie 2 all along, so. Right. Bring that back. Everything's not awesome, not all of the time. It's unrealistic expectations. But it's the effort. It's that everything could, everything has the potential to be awesome. And it's harnessing that potential. Underrated moving. Very. I mean, realistically, probably this one too. I'm sure that in five years, we'll still be some of the few crazy people out there going like, this is one of the best movies of the decade. And people going, the what now? The Mitchells? (laughs) I know it's very early in the season, but I would want the Mitchells versus the Machines to uh, come away with Oscar for best animated feature i don't we'll see what else comes out but my goodness this was just so well made and surprising yeah and different i i know we've talked about in a a past episode of our show that like one of our criteria that we both have for like was something good was like did i leave feeling energized to create and make things and this is definitely a movie that checks that box to me it's like oh wow there's so much new potential in what can be done in a movie in this movie mm-hmm. yeah i i totally agree with that it's that energized feeling 
And, and when your yeah. son says that they want to watch it again at some point, like that's that's a good that's a good thing. It's like what? Rewatch potential. I might watch it again this weekend. <laughs> and for context of recording, it came out two days ago. <laughs> So good. Well, do we have anything else we should say and get off our chest about this amazing, great movie we could never be done talking about? I don't think so. I think I think we've said our piece, and um, I'm just grateful it exists and that we were able to see it. Do you have any favorite thing you want to leave our audience with, whether it's something you already said or a new thing? I think, for me, my favorite thing was just the family experience of the the screaming gibbon. I I just your family. Yeah. It was just it was just that that connection point of everybody like laughing at that moment and then losing it again. And then the next day um Jack coming down the stairs as as doing that screaming gibbon thing and then my wife's saying, that's really funny. Not so loud. It's early. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just lovely to have have those connections like that. It's just it feels really nice. What about for connection? connection? In an isolating age. Um, anyway, what if, what about for you, Mackenzie? Uh, for me, I think I've got a lot of my funny favorite things out of the way. So I'll, uh, in my, my wish list of favorites, I'd say, I think I'll say what I, on a cultural note, I really enjoyed because we're past the spoiler point. I really enjoyed the handling of Katie as an LG or B character of mm-hmm. some kind. Um, cause you could argue like it's a surprise and twist that she like has the hots for Jade, but really she's got the pride pin. She's clearly pining after Jade the whole movie. Just the general Katie codedness of it all. Like my husband and I knew from the beginning, like, oh, she gay. Uh, so yeah, it was just nice that it wasn't a surprise reveal at the end. And there was like a will they or won't they with a boy all along or something. Right. It was just she was Katie. She had problems with her dad. It wasn't about her sexuality because her loving family. And just, by the way, to add to her character at the end, she is maybe dating Jade. Mm-hmm. Like, the point of the movie wasn't her being gay, so there was nothing to fight about there. It wasn't that kind of family. And there was no bait and switch. So it was, it was nice. It was refreshing. Yeah, her movies and the way she saw the world was what made her weird, not her sexuality. Yeah. I think it was... About a third of the way in, Rochelle was like, there's a pride pin. I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just wait. <laughs> I was, and I was like, yeah, there's this girl, Jade. I'm like, oh, is there? Is there this girl named Jade? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I had Facebook when I went to college. I know this this tension that's happening. I know exactly what this is. <laughs> You saw someone cute on the internet that you're going to meet in a couple months. I see. Okay. 
You're trying a little too hard with these memes, Katie. You're trying a little too hard with like, I gotta send this, I gotta talk to her. <laughs> yeah, for those of us paying attention, like, yeah, Katie's gay. <laughs> and I feel like some of you is like, oh, what, that shock ending, like, no. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't. It wasn't obvious, but it wasn't subtle. <laughs> Should we talk homework time? Let's. For your homework, watch episode one of The Bad Batch, premiering on Disney Plus. Watch it. New Star Wars. The Bad Batch, Star Wars, The Bad Batch, or is it just The Bad Batch? I don't know. I think it's Star it Wars, feels... The Bad Batch. I don't know about the colon being in there, but I feel like it's Star Wars and then the phrase The Bad Batch and there's some punctuation maybe between them. Yeah, because it feels weird just to be like, The Bad Batch. Like, I mean, everyone's a joke, I think, already is for the premiere. It's like, a good batch of The Bad Batch, and I think that's the draft title of our next episode, too, so we're not immune, but... <laughs> Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> As always, thank you to our engineer, Nigel Catino, and to Jacob Reed and the champagne drops for our theme music. Please find us on the web. Let us know what you thought about the Mitchells versus the Machines on Twitter at WG Animated. Like us on Facebook. Put up a review wherever you listen to your podcasts so people can find us and listen to us. And, oh, you can find our show notes on writersgetanimated.podbean.com I remember all the things that I'm supposed to say about the internet stuff. I will get it right at some point, and I will figure out this internet thing. I think you did. You checked all the boxes. Yeah. But you're tired. You should, like, go do bedtime. Family things. Because that's family, bro. Oh, I would so be sad if that's the thing that sticks. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 